Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, big idea thinkers, and welcome to another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, fresh out of the box. It's time to recline just for 45 minutes or so, switch off from the workaday worries, and drift into dreams of a brighter future. And here to moderate your meditation, emerging from the curtain is our digital swami. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? Well, speaking of meditation, speaking of hypnotic, speaking of mesmerizing, this week I got to watch a 3D printer produce a building. And you were hypnotized by it. It was. It was. was Watching that, it took, depending on the temperature of the day, it was quite interesting. As it got colder, they had to slow it down a little bit. As it got a bit warmer, they could speed it up a little bit. It ended up going about... 200 millimetres a second in a horizontal form as it was laying out the concrete. Sounds like a bit of an art form. It, it was a bit of an art form to do that part, but then watching it. So to do a whole loop around the entire building took it from 6 to maybe 11 minutes depending on the temperature of the day. And just watching there you go, oh, look at that, it looks cool. And then going around a corner, oh, I wonder how it's going to go this time. Oh, look at that, it did exactly the same thing. <laughs> but the really cool part I thought about it was it had one little spot where it seemed like the print head on the the printer itself actually got a bit of a wobble up. It was almost like it was coming home a bit too drunk, and it kind of just wobbled back and forth as it went along a little straight section. And then the next layer above that was just out of sync, as in the opposite wobble. So when you looked at it as the wall was being built, it looked like basket weaving. It was just a pattern they put ah, into the wall okay. that looked like concrete had been woven Not in quite a kink, but just a little inconsistency. That's it. And right, it, okay. It was brilliant. It just looked fantastic. But I, I really enjoyed watching. <laughs> I know it sounds a bit sad, but I really enjoyed watching the process as it just kept laying out layer after layer so, after so layer. So I've got a question for you. It's got to start from one point where it lays that first blob of, of concrete, right? Mm. And then after it's done a lap, it comes back to that. How does it not create a little lump in that start at that start point. I'm concerned about you and I, James, because the first question I had <laughs> for the guy <laughs> great minds. Yeah. Was I said, so exactly that, how do you do it? Do you go around and then step up so it's kind of got one mm. spot in there that it's almost like this funny spot where it just steps up mm. or do you do it evenly? Now you could hide that little step up. In this particular case the building was a toilet block and you've got some internal parts of that where you don't see them externally and it's basically where some of the services are. So you could hide it away in that particular part but what they do is they actually start off the first part from a very thin amount and then build it up ah. over a metre or so so that you don't really notice that first one there. And then as each layer comes around, it actually just slowly rises over that part of it. They still put it in the service area so you don't even see that small rise initially. If they've got a slab of concrete that's not quite square, that's not perfectly level, for example, they actually don't mind that because then they can actually cater that to get their building perfectly level and use a slight slope that might be in the concrete wow. slab. Now, I assume most slabs are pretty well level, so that probably doesn't apply that often. But yeah, that was the first thing I thought of there, was that <laughs> you'd have this big 
ugly part where it's just kind of like a little step up each lap around. But no, and so you can't really see. You have to go looking for it and have to know what you're looking for. You'd have to do that. But more to the point now, I was kind of looking there and I wanted a laser leveler just to sit there and take across the top to see if I could actually pick up any variation. Because obviously as it goes around that whole length, it starts at one point and then by the time it gets back around, it's actually risen that. But you're talking Mm. about a rise of maybe 25 millimetres over the whole length mm. of it, so you're not going to be able to pick that up with the eye. But mm. all sorts of questions like that. What fascinated me, the spectators. I didn't know that 3D <laughs> printing was a spectator sport. <laughs> it drew a crowd. It had Could a have constant sold stream. Well, absolutely right, but it had a constant stream of people going past. And I talked to one layer, was actually a couple, and they were telling me that they'd been there every day of the print. It took about four days to print. They'd been there every day of the print. And coming back multiple times during the day just to see where it's up to and see what progress has been made. Oh, and really yeah, not, just yeah. really fascinating. This is the future, James. This is the future of construction. I'm, I guarantee that. And the other thing is that my daughter's an architect and she got pretty excited about it because she said, we can now really draw things and let our imagination run free because in the past when you're designing something, you've got to think, oh, how are they going to build this? Mm. Now, the Opera House is a perfect example of that not happening. I'll draw this pretty picture and then Mm. engineers had to go, but how do we make that stand up? Mm. There was a fair process in doing that. But architects typically, they love curves. But building curves is quite difficult. So builders go, oh, no, not another architect that loves curves. But now architects that love curves, they'll be at the front of the line because curves work better. You can imagine as a printhead moves along to do a square joint. It's actually more difficult than a curve. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Whereas a nice curve, you've got the machinery moving nicely together. So, yeah, it was really exciting. I've been quite fascinated by it. So here comes the era of the wavy line building. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I think that's right. You'll get architects going, well, now we can do it. There'll be wavy (laughs) lines all over the place. (laughs) All right, better dig into this week's episode. If a picture tells a thousand words, then an emoji has got to be worth a short sentence at least. A word for the wise. Be careful about shooting your emojis from the hip. It could end up costing you dearly. As it turns out, a thumbs-up emoji is as good as signing on the dotted line, or so a Canadian court has ruled. Matt, what is the world coming to? Head scratch a puzzled face, comical question mark. (laughs) It's fascinating, isn't it? Because emojis, I tend to think of as something that you would use flippantly, something that you would use casually. I wouldn't really think of an emoji as something that's a serious contractual obligation. And that's exactly what this whole court case was about. But it's not the only court case. This is one that's got a final result. But there are there have been about 45 similar cases across the US. And this Canadian court was obviously using some of those as an example. Now, given the fact that the data shows that 92% of the world's population uses emojis, then <laughs> maybe some people will start to go, oh, I better think about these emoji or this emoji use a little bit more. Now, the exact example here was in relation to a farming contract. There was a contract that came across for the delivery of a certain product from a farmer and the farmer sent back a thumbs up emoji. Now, two people disagreed on what that meant. Mm. One side of them said, well, that was just, okay, I've got that, thanks very much. I'll have a think about it. That's reading a lot into a thumbs-up emoji, but yep, okay, I've received it. All good, and if I want to go further, I'll come back to you and sign the contract and complete the deal. The other side thought, well, that means... I'm ready to go. Full steam ahead, thumbs up, absolutely right, everything's okay. And that ended up going to court, 
and the Canadian court actually ruled that the thumbs up emoji was as good as signing oh, that contract. I'm not convinced of that, but I'm not the Canadian the president court. has been set. Exactly right. Now, what was the cost of this thumbs up emoji? Well, the contract was worth $61,442 Canadian dollars. Mm. So that's what the judge ruled had to be paid for the unfulfilled contract. So... <laughs> Goodness it just me. seems incredible to me. But again, oh, look, I suppose part of the error here is that if you use a, a thumbs up emoji, if you use an emoji in a very much a business context, someone sending you a contract, then you probably need to be a little bit more formal in your correspondence. And I guarantee from now on, that 92% might go down quite dramatically <laughs> in thumbs up or emojis across the world. I wonder what world. gifts are going to do now. Well, so if, if you send a gift through, so that if could you had wind a, you up in all sorts of strife. If you had a gif of someone doing a, a click the uh, heels down the, the hallway, for example, yeah. would that mean that, that I love this it? contract? <laughs> oh, this is so great, this contract, I'm clicking my heels. Oh, it does open up a whole range. But what it does show is the way we're communicating is changing dramatically. Now, I hate it when my kids sent me a text message with spelling errors or yeah. just words like great, G-R, number eight. Mm -hmm. No, mm, use the yeah, word properly. Frustrates hell out of me. But maybe I'm a dinosaur and maybe I can now write in formal communication G-R-8 because <laughs> it's used in text messages, so that's okay, isn't it? In the next contract you send out? <laughs> yeah, that's yep. right. I'm right. going to find every abbreviation I can find for every word. Dot it with emojis all through it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And then make sense of that if you dare. <laughs> in a paperless society was an ideal projected about 20 years ago. The emailing revolution was going to cut environmental waste enormously. But as you probably know by now, emails come thick and fast in 2023 and you take a day off from checking them at your own peril. But the carbon cost of emailing is something that I never really thought about until now. Matt, apparently every time we hit send, we released a tiny fart of CO2 into the atmosphere. Is that right? <laughs> well, yes, kind of. <laughs> All the infrastructure that's in place to support our email, you can break down to a per email basis. And I want to tell a quick story about a conference that I was at uh, a couple of years ago now it was, but I was actually hosting a panel session at this conference. It was a technology conference. And we're talking about a range of things, and obviously we've discovered video conferencing now, and it's all wonderful. And I think everyone in the room was pretty comfortable with the fact that we were doing something good mm. for society in having all the video conferencing, not getting in a car, not driving, and all that sort of thing. And then someone from the audience asked the question and said, well, hold on, you've got a carbon footprint from all these servers and the infrastructure to run everything. So is video conferencing actually any better than flying or driving to physical meetings. And I went, oh, wow. To, with that, everyone just sort of That's, sat and stared. They did. They did exactly yeah, that. They got no answer. Oh, <laughs> oh, well, we thought we were doing a pretty good thing here. Now, I haven't actually gone and done the research around video conferencing, but someone for me, it's fantastic, has done all the research on email. Now, it's interesting because obviously mail traffic, physical mail traffic has gone down dramatically. 2006 mm. was about our peak for letters being delivered to mailboxes. It's been going down since then and where we are now is about half the volume of letters being sent compared to 2006. Now, when you see the little Honda CT110 riding along the footpath, by the way, the only motorbike that's legally allowed to go on a footpath is a Honda oh, CT110. Right. Yep. Uh, but when you see the CT110 going along and if you think, okay, there's some carbon emissions associated with that delivery. I can see some little puffs of smoke coming out the back of the motorbike as it goes along. So you can translate exactly 
some carbon emissions to the letter. You can see the letter. Mm. It's made of paper. Someone had to produce that. So it all makes sense. And you think, well, sending an email, I'm doing something good for the planet, for the environment. But when you send an email, you're on a device. That device needed some electricity, whether it's a handheld device or a computer plugged in. There's some electricity that went to powering that device. Then you've got some form of internet connection. There's a telco that's providing that internet connection. So you've got some electricity being used for your internet connection, and then the telco that's then transmitting that. There's some servers back end for the email for all that. There's some carbon that was used, carbon emissions that were produced in producing all of this equipment. So there's got to be a cost yeah. from the environmental perspective for all of this. And when you break down the 3.86 million emails sent globally every second oh, in wow. 2022, and then factor in the point that only 5% of all power produced across the world is produced with renewables, then it turns out that each time you click send, there's 0.3 grams of CO2 equivalent that are released to the environment. Mm. So you break it down. Now, how bad should we feel about that? And should we say, I'm not going to send that email to James because I don't want to add that little bit of extra CO2 to the environment. I'm going to use it as an excuse <laughs> for why I hadn't sent the email. <laughs> That's great. I love it. <laughs> oh, look, I was going to send you that email, but down on CO2. you weren't important <laughs> enough to actually waste some CO2 on. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to use that next time. <laughs> when you break that down, though, and again, if I didn't send that email, really, did I just save? The environment, not really, because all of that infrastructure is already in place. It's the, the total volume there. So a couple of things to consider. The first thing is that all the emails around the world, all of the infrastructure that's in place is contributing about 1,155 kilograms per second of CO2 per second. Mm. And so I thought, well, that seems like a lot. That's over a tonne. But, mm. but is it really that much? Well, the global transportation sector contributes about... 280,000 kilograms per second. So maybe don't feel so bad mm. about the email that you might send. So that's one thing to consider in amongst all of that. The other thing is that spam is causing most of the email traffic. So you and I say, I'm not going to send that email and to save CO2. That yeah. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. you're talking about spam. Spam traffic around the world is approximately 50% of the, the traffic is spam traffic. So if we said to those spammers out there, because apparently they're nice people that would listen to our message, <laughs> hey, to save the planet and stop annoying us so much, can you just cut out the spam and we could then reduce our carbon footprint by about 50%? Would they respond to that one? They don't seem to respond to the annoying part. Do you reckon they'd respond to the CO2 yeah. angle? No, I don't think they Not care. No. Just keep sending out the emails. I, I then thought I'd break it down and see, well, let's give us some comparisons around other things that we use every day that's obviously got a, a carbon footprint associated with it. So 3.86 million emails sent every second I mentioned, 270,000 text messages sent every second, 100,000 Google searches every second, Another 1,000 different YouTube videos are uploaded every second. Can There's you believe that? so much information <laughs> floating out there. 500 new posts on Facebook and 100 new tweets. These are all per second. Yeah. So there's some contributors there wow. to carbon emissions across the world. Think about all that next time you look at some cats on YouTube or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. But it's interesting to think about what's actually contributing to our CO2 across the world. For about 
40 years, solid cell technology has been developing steadily, but we've come to accept the theoretical limit of efficiency for solar cells, given our understanding of the technology, is about 30%. But not for the first time in physics, a real change has come about by totally reframing our thinking to a whole problem. And the 30% efficiency ceiling is about to be smashed. Matt, you've got to love science, don't you? Oh, you've got to love science. And we have talked about that. And as people are getting closer and closer to 30%, they go, wow, I'm almost at that theoretical limit of 30%. Now, my understanding of why it's 30% of the total energy that hits there is all about the wavelengths. The wavelengths that they can convert to electricity are within a certain band. And then when you break that down, you're saying, hey, of all the power, about 30% you could get there in a perfect world. I thought it was also something to do with the semiconductors they were using with uh, PN junctions and whatnot and the use of silicon. But anyway. Well, no, and that could be part of that. That could be related to the, the wave that hits that and then what they can do with it after mm. it hits that. So there's some reasons that are good solid reasons that physicists have come up with to say 30%, if you can reach 30%, you're going pretty well. And many solar panels are 24 25%. That's going quite well. And you get ones that are getting closer and closer. But now, again, this is the thing where you talk about your love science Someone said, well, have we ever thought about putting some sort of different layer over the top to maybe allow us to use some different wavelengths that hit it and maybe that'll change those wavelengths or redirect those? What could we do? And so there's been some work done on exactly that. And effectively, what they've come up with is, well, yes, we can now get past 30%. We can get up to, and there's two separate research projects that have been going that have coincidentally have hit the same sort of mark or the same sort of angle. One in Switzerland has been able to hit 31.2%, and over in Berlin they've managed to be able to get 32.5%. Now that doesn't sound like a lot initially, but it's actually quite significant. Well, to get past the theoretical maximum, any percent, 0.1% past the theoretical maximum, to me, sounds impressive. But you're right, it doesn't sound like, well, you're getting a couple of percent over, big deal. But that's now. Yes, that's right. In the early stages. so what happens next? That's right. So what they've done is they've used, and help me if I've got this wrong, perovskite? How's that sound for pronunciation? Sounds good to me. I've never used that word before. (laughs) Okay, good. So we're going to go with perovskite. I can get away with it then. I thought I might be picked up there. but So they've got a perovskite silicon uh, coating on top of of what would be called a traditional solar panel to be able to increase that efficiency level. So by doing that, they've been able to do that. Now, unfortunately at this stage, they're not at the point of producing commercial-sized and commercial-volume solar panels. This is really in the laboratory over a small panel, but it all starts That's right. It's got to start somewhere. That's right. Now, I'm sure some developer out there, they're talking to some investor, saying, well, if you can get over 30%, fantastic. I can go and resell solar panels to lots of people that have got them now. They might only have them old panels at 20%. Suddenly, you could actually go from 20 to 30%. That's a 50% increase Mm. in the amount of power you could produce out of the same surface area. That sounds like a pretty big win for the environment, and that sounds like a pretty big win when you start to talk about large-scale solar panels, solar installations out there. So it it is exciting. I know it sounds like very small amounts we're talking about, but when you start to look at all of the solar panels across the world, gee, I think that sounds like a huge change, a huge impact we could have from a very small change. Regular listeners will know that last week we talked about enlisting an open AI chatbot to keep telephone scammers occupied, if only for a couple of minutes at least. Well, there's an Aussie version available, and now you can waste some of their time without wasting yours, and I presume with an Aussie accent. Is that right, Matt? 
an Aussie accent and a whole range of other accents. We <laughs> talked we about the story last week, and, and that was interesting. That was a, a small American process. But this is actually Macquarie University. They've received $600,000 in funding from the Office of National Intelligence. And I've actually spoken to some of the researchers involved in this particular one because I was fascinated about it, and I was also keen to see if users could actually use it. It turns out not designed for individual users, more designed for telcos, but what they did was they went a whole lot further than the example we gave last week. They first of all started off with looking at some YouTube videos of scam baiting. So sometimes you see a radio announcer, for example, Mm. receives a call from a scammer, records the whole conversation, and the radio announcer tries to string along the particular person. For entertainment purposes. For entertainment, that's right. And also to waste their time, what the heck. They found 110 hours worth of scam baiting videos that they used to do as a starting point for training. What sort of things could they say to keep them on the line longer? What sort of things ended the call a bit quicker? Learn from that. So that was point one. Then they came up with 102 different AI personalities. They had different genders, different ages, different nationalities or different accents. And then they're using those as an experiment to see the personalities that keep someone on the line for longer. Does a male or a female keep them on the line longer, for example? <laughs> Does someone who's older or younger? Does someone who's got that a puts different a accent? real work into this. Oh, absolutely. So they actually work with all of that to try and work out that, and they're still working on that at the moment. And then what they want to do is they want to take this information to the telcos. TPG has been the first one who's been very interested, but hopefully all the telcos might adopt something like this. It doesn't have to be this exact one. But the idea is that telcos, their solution so far has been, we'll block that number. But Mm. the scammers can keep using other random numbers. And I'm sure you've had a situation where you've had a missed call. And when I say missed call, I go, oh, I better ring that person back. And I ring the person back and it says, this number's not connected. Yeah. Hold on. How can that be? I got a missed call from them. Mm. And the reason that that actually happens is that the scammers spoof numbers. That number doesn't have to be real. When they're ringing you, they're making up a pretend number. Or sometimes you've had the situation, you ring back, hey, how are you going? I missed a call from you. Who's this? Oh, this is Matthew. Well, I don't know you. Well, yeah. well mate, you just rang me. What do yeah. you mean you don't know me? Well, I've got no idea who you are. Where are you based? And so finally you go, oh, I know what's happened here. This has been a spoofed mobile number. So it could be real. It could be a fake number. Yeah. But they spoof them. So blocking numbers is not really an effective process to stop scammers because when you block that number, they'll just use another number next time mm. and they just have this random process. But keeping them on the line, now we talked last week about how long they might keep them on the line. The record for this particular one has been 48 minutes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's some scammer <laughs> thinking, man, I'm in for a payday in here. Your face, scammer. <laughs> That's right. I've really got this person right where I want them. I'm going to make sure I really squeeze some money to this person. That's 48 fantastic. minutes later, they finally hang up on them. Again, the, the great part about this is not wasting your time or my time. No. It's not potentially getting money out of someone that's vulnerable, it's just wasting the scammer's time. And if it finally gets to the stage where the scammers aren't making money, they will hopefully mm. throw their hands up in the air and say, this is all hopeless, I'm, I'm giving it all And up. when you're fishing such a broadcast net, such a wide net, 
that 48 minutes is a fairly important time <laughs> where you feel like you're getting making headway and yeah. then all of a sudden it comes to nothing. And we mentioned last week that they use automated dialers. So yeah. they might dial 100 people per second to try and get through to someone live. And when they feel like they've got a live one, that's when humans come into the equation. So well, the success is in the volume that they're able to, to cover, isn't it? A so, numbers game. Yeah, yep. that's right. So Let's waste their time by 48 minutes. Let's yeah. see if we can break that record, That's folks. right, exactly. So the AI bot's called APATE. A-P-A-T-E. I don't know why. I should have asked the researchers when I was talking to them about it. should have asked them why. But developed by Macquarie Uni. Sounds like a great thing. And again, hopefully, at the back end, some of the telcos will take up this and, and use that in their technology. In what many may see as a sad indictment of the current situation in American schools, one high school in Santa Fe is enlisting the help of a robocop to support security measures. Matt has the details and you have 15 seconds to comply. <laughs> That's one of my favourite lines out of the original Robocop movie. <laughs> it does sound a bit like that, doesn't it? I mean, it is sad, isn't it, that we have to talk about the fact that you're going to have well, security well, the guards fact that they've got security guards to yeah. start off with, but that's an old uh, th- that's old news. They've had security guards in schools for a long time, and one of the problems is that schools have to pay security guards, obviously, mm-hmm. and so that means that you can't have as many resources for your education. School should be a great place for education, but some of their budget has to go towards security guards. When we talk about a robocop, let's call it robocop. What the heck? When we call it a robocop, uh, we're talking about. A purchase price. Now, the purchase price for these, the, the ones they've got rolling out already, are around sixty dollars to $70,000. So you might say that that might be a wage of a security guard for a year. So after a year, you're probably in front. But I think you're in front in a whole range of other ways as well. You end up with something, a, a, a robotic device, that looks and feels humanoid in some ways, but with lots of advantages. For a start, the height, they're talking about these about 1.7, 1.8 metres tall, mm-hmm. so about the same size as a human, about 180 kilograms, so a bit heavier than a human, but you want that bulk because you might want this to take action. Then they set it up with a 360-degree camera on the top. That's being recorded on the device, but also being able to be transmitted back to remote monitoring if needed. So let's take worst-case scenario, active shooter, well, you could have this particular Robocop sitting in there and police could be looking at this external to the school, external to the building, mm. and get a view of what's going on, how many active shooters are there, where are those active shooters, let's be able to take some action from that. Yeah, so this Robocop isn't armed and it's not going to start firing at kids and stuff like that. No, it's got the ability to detect weapons on people mm-hmm. and try and disarm people but not to actually be armed. So you don't want a Robocop going in there going, oh, I think there's an active shooter over there. <laughs> Let's start going for it. And then, uh, yeah. This is a bad movie, everyone. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, like keep going, yeah. But, yeah, so you can scan people as they come in. So as kids come into school, they're looking for something on their body. They're not doing an X-ray scan per se, but they're looking for certain boulders. A gun might mm-hmm. be tucked down in a, a back pocket, for example, or a knife. So it can detect that and then, again, alert authorities. It's really designed to alert. It's really designed to say there's something wrong here, there's something different. One of the ones I really liked is that using AI detects and learns a school's usual activity. Okay, 11 a.m., a school bell goes, I know I'm going to have some kids in these corridors at that time. 11.05, they're in class again. First thing it does, it says, why is there a student out when I'm not expecting a student out? Mm. And then looking at the behaviour, does that student seem anxious, aggressive? Is there some 
change in the behaviour, in the way they're walking, for example, because, again, I'd imagine if you're about to go and be an active shooter, you're probably not just calm and relaxed. You probably would mm. be a little bit tense in the way you walk. This particular robot can pick up on that. Wow. So a whole range of things to try and reduce the possibility that something happens in the beginning. And if something does happen, try and get people on the site, try and get people with information, try and do something, stand in harm's way, if you like. So it's really something that is sad, but I love the idea that technology is being used to try and take over and try and help out schools in this scenario. Well, I wonder what the uh, feeling from the Parents Association is about this. You know, uh, obviously it's been a move that's been sanctioned by them, but um, yeah, how many parents are on board? How many parents are against? It seems like, once again, Americans have found an excellent answer for a problem that has an even better solution. Yeah, that's right. You mean take guns away? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, I don't uh, want to get too political here. The use of mannequins in medical, uh, in medical training is not a new concept by any stretch, but in 2023 we've come a long way from lifeless plastic and rubber dummies. At Swindon College in the UK, the undergrad health professionals of tomorrow will train on mannequins that are quite a bit more responsive thanks to some clever, clever modern robotics. Matt, slightly less messy, but not far from the real thing from what I gather. Well, I actually spoke to a doctor, well, this is months ago now, and he said at the beginning of his medical training, they were allocated a cadaver. Well, that, yeah, that, that's what I thought happens in medical training. That's right. They just bring out a bag of heads, a bag of torsos. <laughs> and guess what we're doing today in an anatomy lesson? It's just well, yep. this doctor said that when he started, he was allocated one body that was his for his medical degree. Oh, for the whole medical degree. So when it was time to work on heads, you'd go and get your head essentially. Yeah, right. When it was going time to work on chest, you'd mm-hmm. go and get your body and, and work through it. So that was your friend for the next years of your medical degree but it's expensive mm. and yeah not and how do you access those bodies well that's the kind besides of the, the black it. market <laughs> well, yeah. well no they do have a i'm sure they're not going to the black market and buying them. all those doctors out there were not accusing you of going to the black market to buy a body but you've got to rely on people donating a body to medical science yeah. so it's it's a bit clumsy a bit difficult and it's still you've got young medical students working on a Real live, not well, live. Well, yeah, I've always body. thought to myself that it's a fairly grotesque way of doing it, but mm. I want any doctor that's working on me to have seen the real thing, yeah? <laughs> that's right, to play around with someone else first, please. So it is a, an interesting process. But the mannequins are getting better and better now. And one of the things I love, and I actually watched a demonstration of this, you've got mannequins that have got so many realistic components on the body, mm. but then you can actually have some training doctors, or sorry, the doctors doing the training, sit separate away from that and they've got a control panel or they've got an iPad, they've got a device that they can say, right, let's see how you cope with this. Let's just put a bit of high blood pressure. Right, what do you do now? And the, the doctor, the training doctor comes along or trainee doctor comes along and says, right, well, I'd recommend this or I'd prescribe that or whatever it might be. Right, what about if I throw a quick little cardiac arrest into the equation now? How do you handle it? And so the, the doctors who are doing the training say, we have some fun sometimes. We actually introduce things to these mannequins that aren't normal, the things that don't really happen to humans and see how the students cope with that. Put them under extreme stress. Put them under situations that they haven't trained for, they haven't read in textbooks. these mannequins I read, they scream and cry and stuff. Exactly right. And they actually even give birth. And again, (laughs) imagine that process where you're going, right, now you want to be a doctor and we're just going to take you into a birthing room and... Do you mind, madam, that we just have a trainee doctor, you know, watch job at that stage, the, the mother says, I don't care what's going on, just get this baby out of me. <laughs> um, but again, it's a fairly grotesque process and, and some people are a bit uncomfortable with having trainee doctors in when there's some yeah, initial sure. 
discussion or they might be embarrassed about a problem, whatever it might be. But on a mannequin, they can have so many of these processes take place before they get there and they're getting better and better and better. And that's the thing, I suppose, one of the, the versions I saw a while ago was pretty good, but the, the doctors did tell me that they wish I could do this, this and this, so other things there. Again, when you start to add some screams in, when yeah. you start to get to the point where this is as good as a real live person, because how do you concentrate on just the data when you've got someone screaming at you saying, get this baby out of me or I'm in pain or whatever it might be, yeah. that's got to be a bit distracting. Got to maintain your focus. Yeah, so they're quite clever. They they do look realistic, but it's more about that control over all the things they can introduce yeah. to the mannequin to simulate what's happening. So it, it is simulation. It includes doing injections and um, inserting catheters and whatnot. And, and again, you've, you've had the example in the past probably where you've had someone give you a needle or put a needle in you and you've seen Oops, the good ones and sorry. the bad ones. Yeah, that's right. Oh, I missed so, again. Let me um, have another go. So again, practicing on all of those things and getting the skin right on these mannequins so that it does simulate what yeah. real skin would be like. As I said, putting a needle in and, and getting it in the right spot and, and actually being able to get it in the skin without causing too much pain. There is a real art form in that. So I love them. I love the, the concept here. And I love the fact that we're still developing these better and better all the time. A revolutionary element of special effects in the movies came with the invention of the green screen. From the safety and convenience of a studio, actors can be placed in any situation that a director can dream up, given a little editing magic later on. Well, movie fans, it's time for an upgrade, and the good people at Netflix are improving the process further with magenta screen technology. Matt, this is going to speed up the process and improve the quality, am I right? It will, both of those. And, of course, magenta is not a name you throw in very often, except about <laughs> toner cartridges. You often say, yeah, where's the sure. magenta? That's what I thought of immediately. Yeah, that's right. What happens normally, obviously, in a green screen is you have some green in the background and then actors do whatever they're doing there. There might be some action sequence that's supposedly on top of a plane or whatever it might be. And, of course, everyone knows it's not happening, but it looks Falling pretty good. Falling from the Nakatomi building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all those sort of things. And the problem, of course, is that if you've got any green on you, suddenly that part becomes transparent because it's set up when you're doing your editing to remove any of that green from there. So actors yeah. have got to be very careful. Don't wear a green wristband. Don't have any green in your actual clothing or anything like that because it looks a bit strange when you've got a hole through the also, middle. Also, old movies, tend, you tend to be able to pick the green screen special effects as the movie ages. I don't know what that, that's about. Is that involved at oh, all? I don't know, but I, I agree Do with you. Do you know what I'm talking about? You see people in a car. That's always the classic scene. They're in the car driving along and you go, that's, right. yeah, that's not a car. That screen. background's not right there. <laughs> Maybe it's because the background was so bad compared to modern backgrounds. Maybe it's more about that. But what Netflix has come up with is using magenta. Now, the reason they use this is that what they do is they actually have green LEDs in the background and then on the actor and actors themselves, they project magenta, which obviously is made up of red, green, no, sorry, magenta will be made up it's of red and blue. I think. Red and blue. So you've got red and blue on the actor, you've got green in the background. Then by using some fancy camera trickery, let's call it that, then they can say, well, even if someone had some green on them, the fact that we've got red and blue being projected on them to produce magenta, we can remove that, still keep the green there, and then contrast that against the green in the background. Right. It's all about colours that we see are made up of RGB, red, green, and blue. Yeah. And so effectively, 
they can do that. And again, it seems quite incredible to me that just by projecting a different colour on the actor, so the actor sitting there, they would look magenta over the top. They can re- re- remove the red and blue out of there. The green in the background, they can make transparent. Bang, they've got better green screen technology. Well, I wonder if that also helps with some of the fine details. Like hair is a big one, hair and feathers and things like that. Um, so sometimes you can sort of see a tiny line around the outside. Yeah, you can, um, can't you? Just that little fuzz around the outside. Yeah, you sometimes yeah. See. yeah. So yes, that's exactly what it's designed for, to give you a crisper edge and to make it so that if someone has a bit of green on them, it's okay, and to make it more realistic. I'm fascinated by one part of this, and that's the fact that Netflix came up with this. Not Mm. MGM, not Warner Brothers, but Netflix. And it gives you an idea, doesn't it, just how big Netflix is getting. And how hard Netflix are working. Yeah, to get the whole movie game exclusive to Netflix. I mean, it used to be that people would watch Netflix for some old shows, old TV shows, old movies. But now, all of these different streaming services New content, original content seems to be the, the secret there. So the fact that they're presenting this or they're producing this, I think is actually quite fascinating. That's probably a bigger part of the story than the actual <laughs> technology behind it. EV owners love their new cars. Just ask them about it if you've got a spare couple of hours. And what better way for an EV owner to say, I love my new EV, than to wrap it up in a cosy blanket for those long, cold winter nights. Matt, tell them about the latest must-have for EV owners. <laughs> Some people do take the trouble, don't they, just to put a cover over their car. Yeah. They don't have a garage, they put a cover over it. That's great. And I, I must admit, I, I've always probably had a garage to put a car in, but I probably wouldn't go to all that trouble of putting a cover over a car just to keep some bird poo off it, whatever it might be. But now maybe there's a good reason to do it, to protect the car and to keep the battery in the right temperature range. Mm. And that's the secret here. Lithium-ion batteries, whether it be on your phone or in your car, perform better within a range of 15 degrees Celsius to 35 degrees Celsius. And it's interesting, when people are driving around as it gets to warmer months in the year, they think, oh, well, it gets hotter, an EV won't perform as well. Well, it will, as long as you don't get over 35 degrees Celsius. So it's actually better than in colder climates. And that's where they see the real drop-off in EV performance when you get down to those freezing temperatures. Now... If you can have a way of keeping the battery within that range, that will perform better. But do you want to use energy from the battery to keep the temperature range of the battery in the range? Do you get enough advantage out of using extra energy to keep the temperature range right as opposed to what you lose in performance? And in some cases, yes, you might. In some cases, no. But if you had a blanket that you put over it that actually used or was passive and was an insulator, then that sounds like it makes sense. Now, you can't leave it on while you're driving, obviously. Mm. You put the blanket on while you've you got the car overnight or in the heat of the day. And so what they found with this particular blanket is it could reduce the vehicle temperature by 8 degrees Celsius on a hot day and it could increase the temperature of the battery by 7 degrees Celsius on a cold night. That sounds like not a bad solution. So, for example, if your temperature overnight got down to, say, 8 degrees Celsius, then this blanket would keep it at 15 degrees Celsius, therefore you're in that ideal range and the same on the other side of the spectrum. So again, people are coming up with different solutions. I'd never thought of putting a blanket on an EV to keep the battery within the right temperature range, but when you think about it, you go, well, it makes sense, it protects the car and keeps the battery right. Sounds like a pretty good solution. Having been told to stop diagnosing myself with Google Doctor and just go and see the damn doctor, 
This next story flies in the face of all of that. Google has been developing a medical AI chatbot designed to respond to medical queries. It's being tested by some notable medical clinics in the US. And Matt, is this going to replace our trip to the GP? Who told you to stop using Dr. Google? What sort of (laughs) advice was that? (laughs) You're right. People do use Dr. Google and they do have every random bit of information on the internet come back to them as a solution. I've got a lump mm. on my leg here. What should I do about it? Turns out you've got tuberculosis. <laughs> That's obviously, it always goes to the extreme, <laughs> doesn't it? But it's not a good idea to use Dr. Google for serious medical issues that you want to get properly diagnosed. It might be, uh, my arm's sore after a run, what should I do? You might get some initial information, but sure, go and see some professionals. But Google's also been working on a chatbot that, get ready for it, doesn't take every bit of random information off the internet. It actually looks at clinical data, looks at peer-reviewed data, looks at real data to see if it can get a better diagnosis. Now, the Mayo Clinic has been doing some research on this, and they've been doing it side-by-side with proper doctors, with real doctors. So when someone comes in, here are my issues, here's my problem, what do you think it might be? The doctor's looking at that as a normal scenario, but also they're feeding this information into this chatbot. It's called MedPalm2 is the chatbot, the medical AI chatbot. And then they're analysing the information that comes out of the chatbot compared to the information that comes out of the real doctor, and they're finding that they're very similar. Oh, right. Now, they're not saying that we should get rid of all the doctors now and we've got a chatbot to replace them all. What they're really focused on here is can we get a chatbot that's good enough if we went to somewhere that didn't have easy access to doctors. So, for example, a third world country or, for example, some regional locations that they just don't have enough doctors to service the population, Mm. could this be a way of getting an initial step down the line? It seems like your problem is just because your arm's a bit sore, rest it for a couple of days, everything will be okay, or, oh, no, you need some further testing, let's go and get that testing done straight away. If they continue to work chatbot side-by-side with the doctor – get to the stage where they're confident that the, the chatbot's getting it right 99% of the time compared to a doctor. And let's face it, doctors aren't perfect either. They could get mm. some part wrong. Then let's start rolling this out into some of those places that don't have good what access. What if you start seeing screens like at McDonald's now when you go to place your order, instead of going up to the counter, you've got a screen that you place your order on. Whether or not you go to the doctor's surgery now and outside the front door, you don't even have to walk in and potentially contaminate everyone with your coughing and your sneezing and whatnot. Um uh, and uh, yeah, you, have a you, have a private room maybe where you can go to the doctor's surgery, sit down with a chatbot, and just have that initial discussion. And then maybe you could be more efficient. So again, I think of places that don't have enough doctors. Do that initial step through process, and then you're okay. Go home or quickly go into room two. That's when there's a real doctor to see you and continue mm-hmm. on this process. You might be right. That might be the future of this type of chatbot. Do we then get at the stage where you roll it out so that you can just sit at home and do it? That's what worries me a bit because sometimes in that scenario, people don't take the next step they need to take. At least if you've made the the first step to go to a doctor's surgery, you might then take the next step there. It's uh, interesting. I don't know the final answer to that, but it's certainly fascinating. But it's opened up, uh, yeah, a a different path to the future. Yeah, indeed. And with the packaging peanuts strewn all over the floor, that's all that remains of this unboxed episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Nice work, Matt. Smashed out another cracker today. I want to put my thumbs up across the table here and, and with say... a smiley face. Yeah, I want to do that to you, but I'm not <laughs> sure if that will then be another legally binding contract and I'll owe you some money in the future or something. So I'll just say, thanks, James. Good work. 
Okay, fair enough. I won't hold you to any emoji um, contract then. I'm off uh, to track down one of those EV blankets, and I'll see if I can find a matching pillow set while I'm at it. Something to match the decor of the gar- gar- the garage, perhaps. Something with a leafy, dusty, oil stain motif to tie it all together. Hmm. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. It's a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson week after week. I'm your host, James Eddy, and I hope to catch you again in another week's time. Don't forget to hit the like or subscribe through your provider, leave a comment, or maybe even drag a friend along for our next episode. Catch you in a week's time.